This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by the Felder Report. Uh, each week, I go through a ton of reading and research, and I put it all together in a free email newsletter that goes out Saturday mornings, including some of the best stuff that I've read during the week, my favorite chart of the week, etc. If you're interested in receiving something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com, and right there on the homepage, it says join now. Click that, put it in your email address, and you'll be all set. My guest for this episode is Peter Atwater, and if you're curious about how sentiment affects markets and securities, then you're really going to enjoy this episode. Peter is a socionomist, so he studies how confidence affects our decision-making inside and outside of the markets, really. Peter is one of the few people who has a truly unique perspective, unique process in the markets. I just haven't met anyone else who looks at things the way he does. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter Atwater. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. And we're live. Uh, Peter Atwater, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here. You seem like a guy who is just having a field day with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the markets and in the in the media lately. So I, I think we have a ton to talk about, but uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Jesse. Yeah, so, you know, I want to talk about socionomics. I think this is something that most people have no conception of, even if they are uh, aware of, you know, contrarianism and, and those types of things. But I, I want to first start with your background because it's totally different from, I think, what you're doing today, much more traditional um, finance career. H- how did you first get started there? And, um, and uh, well, yeah, t- t- tell me a little bit about your, your background in finance. So you're right. I, I have two very distinct careers. I have a typical finance background, you know, right out of college, went to Wall Street, ended up at J.P. Morgan uh, at a really interesting time, able to help as the organization moved from bank to investment bank and getting involved in the capital markets industry uh, was really fortunate in being in the right spot at the right time with respect to securitization and doing a lot of uh, interesting, complex deals for credit card companies, the auto companies and folks like that. And then ended up going to work for one first USA that got wrapped into bank one and uh, ultimately ended up running the private client business for bank one before coming back to the East coast to actually worked with some friends who had been in the credit card business who were setting up a, a new card business that we uh, ultimately sold to um, to Barclays. And uh, that just happened to be a great time to uh, exit the financial services industry. Um, when I was uh, turning 45, uh, my son looked at me as I was blowing out the birthday cakes and said, Dad, you're halfway to 90, uh, which is not something you really want to ever hear. Right. And, <laughs> and uh, so I quit my job three months later and stumbled across uh, Minionville, which folks may know from Todd Harrison and in your uh, interview with him, and just happened to have a great background to work with some folks 
who were in the hedge fund industry looking to take advantage of the upheaval in the mortgage market. And between my background as a bank treasurer and securitization, um, it was really fun working with folks through the banking crisis. Um, and it's about at that point, Jesse, that my my traditional career came to an end um, because I can remember back in March of 2009 thinking that what had happened to the housing industry and then to the banks would ultimately impact sovereign credits, that it was the same kind of cancer, just different patients. And so when the market started to really take off in 2009, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I not, don't expect this, not looking for this. And that's when my career changed, when I stumbled across some work that Bob Prechter had been doing in the world of socionomics. And I don't know how familiar you and the folks are who might be listening to this about socionomics, but it just made such intuitive sense to me that how we feel would impact what we do. And I think from that moment, from you know, listening to Bob talk about the basic socionomic principles, I really changed how I looked at markets and more broadly decision-making uh, because we, we truly act as we feel. So I would imagine, you know, just 20 years in finance, you, after watching people's decision-making, once you come across something like socionomics, it just makes perfect sense with what your experience of decision-making and as you term it, you know, confidence-driven decision-making, um, you know, just, just makes sense to you. Um, can you, what, what is socionomics specifically? So socionomics takes the view that, uh, changes in social mood follow uh, wave structures that are, you know, compatible, consistent with the Elliott Waves system. And and to be honest, I'm not an Elliottician. So much of what is focused on in terms of the alignment with uh, Elliott Waves isn't something that I spend a lot of time on. Um, what I tend to look at are the the actual behavioral attributes that go along with confidence. And I have found that confidence is a simpler uh, nomenclature, as it were, versus social mood um, with many of the, the clients and prospects that I talk to. But it, I think that it's important because it, it sets up a dynamic of recurring uh, cyclicality that we move behaviorally in cycles from extreme lows in confidence to extreme highs in confidence. And then those patterns repeat both on a fractal basis and then on a much larger um, sort of grand super cycle basis to borrow from the, the Elliott Wave principle. And I have found that those those cycles and the, and the cyclical nature of it becomes a very useful framework because to the extent that you begin to understand what extreme lows in confidence look like and what extreme highs in confidence look like, the behaviors are translatable and applicable across 
any market segment. You can look at it for an industry segment. You can look at it on a specific company basis. You can look at it in terms of commodities. Um, and you can also look at it uh, socially in terms of government behaviors as well, and particularly because policymakers follow mood really remarkably. So it's a, it's a, I think it's a universal framework that is applicable, you know, economics, financial markets, politics, uh, social behavior, even cultural behavior. And so you have, um, you know, written and, and spoken about how we're in a time right now of social underconfidence. Um, what does that mean and, and how do you determine that? So I use the term underconfidence uh, consistent with the way other people use the term overconfidence. And I think that if you were to look at the traditional views of confidence, they, there's a, a view that you have none, some, or too much. And I think it's actually a full spectrum where you have both too much at one end when you are overconfident and you have too little at extremes and underconfidence. That uh, just like we underestimate risks at peaks in confidence, we overestimate risks at lows. And so, to the extent that there are behaviors that go along with overestimating risk, like selling stocks at the low and, and panicking, uh, those behaviors become very useful uh, tiles in a in a richer. A larger behavioral mosaic. And, you know, one of the things I, I really like, I think it's, it was in one of your, your TED Talks, and I'll link to that uh, in the post for this episode, but you, you, um, you talk about horizon preference and related to confidence. Can you explain that? Sure. So in my effort to better understand and, and to apply socionomics, I was trying to see what the consistencies were behaviorally. And through an iterative process, I stumbled really into this notion of, of horizon preference, and that is to how we feel drives how far we can see, how far we will travel. Um, and what I found is that when confidence is extremely low, it's about me here now. So there's a, a social element to it. There's a time element to it. There's a physical, um, often ethnic, uh, relational element to it. And at the other end, sort of the, the extreme high confidence mode, we have a horizon that is endless. It's us it's everywhere. It's forever. And so you really can begin to see in terms of how people are framing the world around them in their decision making and, and actually use that as an indicator. For example, whenever I see companies suspending guidance, they're, they're basically confessing that they have a very short, narrow horizon preference, that they're in me here now mode. And that's, a, that's to me, a useful measure of, of management mood, which is likely to be mirrored by investor mood. 
Okay. And so underconfidence and overconfidence, you know, they cycle. And just from an investment standpoint, would you say that, you know, prices cycle with those? So peaks in price are usually correlated to peaks in confidence? Yes. And I, I see price as a barometer of mood. Uh, they are, it's not that mood causes price to rise. It's not that price causes mood to rise. Price measures mood so that they are absolutely in sync all the time. So a peak in price, a very high price would reflect very high confidence. Okay. And, you know, if we are in a time of social underconfidence, uh, there are a bunch of, um, you know, me here now, I guess, signs that I could point to. But I mean, what are some of the ones that, that you look at that suggest to you that underconfidence is pretty widespread from just a social standpoint? So from a social standpoint, I think you can look, for example, at immigration as a political third rail. Uh, to me, nothing says me here now like anti-immigration sentiment, rising nationalism, uh, just political tribalism. You know, we are we are trying to associate only with those who are most familiar to us. Um, other kinds of, of me behaviors uh, or he, uh, hear behaviors, uh, even silly things like binge watching on television uh, and the whole migration away from the, the traditional network series where, you know, you had to watch a, a show at eight o'clock or nine o'clock. Now it's it's on demand, and that that on demand lifestyle, uh, K cups. I mean, they're, they're, the the range of me here now selfies. It all really ties together. Yeah, and I, I think of the new Directv commercials where you know they say if you can get piggy with your beer, you know you can get piggy piggy with your TV, and they're 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 advertising directly to those consumers who want it, you know, designed for them and that they could customize it for them. Um, yeah, I think you've pointed to, you know, social media and, you know, as a, a, the perfect, you look at Instagram and, and it's just, it's absolutely me here now. And, um, uh, and so there, there are just a ton of those. What, what I'm curious to know though, is how do we reconcile this social underconfidence with, what appears to me as to, to be a extreme overconfidence in the financial markets. And to me, you know, I, I just look to, I can't think of a form of investing that would be more overconfident than passive. I mean, putting incredible faith in just buy and hold forever. Um, how, how do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on passive first? And then how do you reconcile that confidence with the social underconfidence? So I look at the, the surge in passive, particularly the post-banking crisis surge in passive, as being a behavioral change that naturally arose from the, the betrayal of active management. Um, you know, active managers were supposed to get you out of the top in 2007, and, you know, they didn't. And so I think what you've seen is the sense that if I can't time the market, if I can't beat the market, then at least I can be the market and just uh, 
you know, this this blind faith in the fact that markets just go up. Um, and and I agree with you. I, I think it's it's actually um, itself an expression of relatively mediocre confidence in the investment world. Um, and I think that it's it, it's a really stark contrast to what you're seeing, for example, in the cryptocurrency space, where um, you know that is arguably active management on steroids. So, but I think that the this um, you know just unending flood of funds into uh, passive investing is is more a capitulatory trade than it is an enthusiastic trade. You know, that, that's an interesting point because I spoke with Stephen Bregman a few months ago and I think he argued and, and probably would argue uh, in terms of a socioeconomic perspective that the, the shift to passive was really an underconfidence trade to begin with. People feeling like they made such poor decisions uh, that cost them so much money in the financial crisis that they'd rather just settle for mediocrity than than try and have confidence in their own abilities to do better. Yeah, I mean, and you look at the the pure hatred of market timing. I mean, I, I can't imagine trying to you know create a, an active management fund that expressly advertises you know we we will time the market. I mean, you, you just, that's an unsaleable product today. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it, I still think, though, that it's evolved, this, the, path, the push to passive. I mean, originally, I can absolutely see how it came from underconfidence. But today, it seems to me that it's instead of, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm not confident in my own abilities, so I'll settle for mediocrity. Today, it seems to me like the the underpinning psychology is more of you know well if you had bought in 2007 and just held till today you would have done great and so it's more of a faith in i'll never lose money so long as i have a long enough time frame well um, and you get those those thoughts at the end of the cycle because there is a that a truth now to the passive investing theme uh, it has now, after a relentless, almost nine-year bull market, it has been proven true. So it's it's an unrefutable, undeniable fact that passive beats active. You were stupid to sell. You should never have gotten out of the markets. Um, look at what you gave up. And that kind of hindsight certainty is precisely what you saw in housing at the top. You know, home prices only go up, proven to be absolutely true the moment before it wasn't. And I think we're seeing the same, uh, that same narrative uh, forming around passive in, in spades. Yeah, well, it's just, it's fascinating to me because I do see exactly what you're saying about underconfidence in society it seems to me like it's it's everywhere you look once you understand the concept um but in the markets you know there it's it's totally the other way i mean you you mentioned you know the the overconfidence in crypto and um the overconfidence it seems to me in in 
in passive today, uh, in the fang stocks, in you know a variety of th- things that have just done very very well, which inspires that overconfidence. And, you know, how can there be such a, a divergence between um, you know social underconfidence and then the markets, which seem so overconfident? Well, I, again, I, I go back to these these uh, moments where the belief system has been proven either false or true. And, and I think that uh, certainly in the last year, what we've had was investors who were convinced going into the election that the, that the, the election of Donald Trump would be devastating and decimating to the markets. And when that didn't happen, then there is this undercurrent, this this notion in the belief system that politics don't matter, that markets, even when very bad bad things happen, uh, the market is just going to keep going up, and and so it's not surprising, I guess, that we we now have the the ignore politics uh, trade um, it, it just you know, being taken to extreme. Right. North Korea shooting missiles over Japan and the market does nothing. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Although, although um, North, Korea, North Korea launching missiles is an interesting one because if you look at the North Korean confidence, uh, it is, I, I created a, ch- a chart just looking at the missile launches plotted against the, the Kaspi and the, the mood in the Korean peninsula, as it goes higher and higher, more and more missiles are launched. So it's a very, you know, very interesting to see that overconfidence in the Korean peninsula resulting in you know, more and more projectiles in the air that are being ignored by the markets. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's. I mean, there's been a, a ton of media coverage of, I think the New York Times, you know, had an article over this last weekend suggesting, you know, that it doesn't matter what's going on, you know, in politics and society, the markets just keep going higher. And so it is a, you know, some of that, and I'm curious to know your thoughts about, uh, you know, faith in central bankers, you know, I think a lot of people in the markets, it, we, this stuff doesn't matter because as so long as the central bankers are in control, and going to prop up the markets, they just can't go down. And so it seems to me there's, there's a confidence cycle uh, just in faith in central banks as well, too. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I, I think that there is no question that there has been a bubble in central bank confidence. But I think that bubble peak is behind us. Um, I think that, at least for the United States, the, the peak was, you know, when the 10-year bottomed a couple of years ago in terms of yield. And, and I say that because one of the things that you find in terms of confidence is at peaks of confidence, there is a uniform singular voice. And with respect to the Fed today, that is definitely not the case. Um, we all know the names of the different regional Fed presidents. 
And certainly under the Greenspan era, I, I would challenge anybody to list, you know, name, name the different Fed presidents in 1999. You, you just couldn't do that. There, there was one voice to the Fed. And today we have, you know, 12 different voices. And so I think that they're, they're becoming um, fractured in front of our eyes. And, and I don't think people have quite seen the implications of that. Because that, that that is a sign of deteriorating confidence. Interesting, and I, you know, I am seeing more more um, rising criticism of you know central bank efficacy, which is something that I, we haven't seen for you know throughout this this bull market. But uh, I, I want to ask you too about another thing related to passive, and that's. Um, Ray Dalio and risk parity. This seems like another one where, you know, I think risk parity is, you know, similar uh, in strategy to, you know, just a passive asset allocation. Um, and now, you know, Ray Dalio is, is in the media and, you know, more than he's far more than he's ever been before. He's promoting his book called Principles. And um, you've written some interesting thoughts about, um, you know, this confidence cycle and maybe the implications for, you know, risk parity. And, and the broader markets. Can you share some of those? Sure. So I'm not a fan of CEO books. Uh, I think as a behavioral indicator, they are a, a red flashing light that people should take seriously to heart. Um, you know, whether it's Jack Welch with his book, Jack, or uh, John McKay's book, the, the, I guess, still kind of head of Whole Foods, uh, CEO books always tend to ooze hubris. And so I'm not optimistic for Bray Dalio and by association, Bridgewater and risk parity. Um, you know, when, when CEOs write books that have nothing to do really with what they are famous for, uh, that's, that's a troubling I- indicator of, of self-promotion. Um, I think that particularly for risk parity, it is predicated on the notion that historical correlations will continue to hold. And I worry openly about the fact that risk parity does not entertain the idea of deflation as a potential economic environment for the markets. And, you know, from what I see looking ahead in an environment of falling mood, deflation is most likely to be what we are faced with economically. And so I think deflation will seriously challenge the, the performance of, of risk parity. You know, and that is interesting. It brings up uh, another you know question to my mind, which is, you know, if you if you feel like um, just from a socioeconomic perspective, um, you know, we're in a de- underconfidence, is, you know, leads to um, deflation or the related in some way. What what previous is there a previous time in history you think that we're we're most closely resembling today? So, you know, having said deflation, I think people will wince when I say that the the parallel environment is the late 60s, you know, into the 70s, because in that environment, it was inflation, not deflation. Um, 
And so in many ways, I feel like we are at the other end of the of the price spectrum. But behaviorally, we are so similar to that environment of um, and, and I, I think of, you know, what we're seeing now with the fangs and how much that parallels what we saw with companies like ITT in the late 60s, where they were viewed as too powerful, too global. Um, they did not have our best interests at heart. Um, you're seeing it politically in the growing divisions. You're seeing it socially, uh, certainly the, the rise of, you know, the whole uh, transgender um, you know the the extremes that we're seeing across sexuality. So I, I think that behaviorally we're in a very uh, comparable environment uh, to what what existed you know, fifty you know forty to fifty years ago. Well, yeah, and I I wanted um, you know come back to the the risk parity point that you made. I think that's important. Is that uh, you know there's a lot of these strategies, whether it's passive or risk parity, and they're essentially extrapolating the past indefinitely into the future, which is probably in in your line of thinking a, a great example of overconfidence. <laughs> yeah, if I had to do T-shirts, they would be extrapolation kills. Um, <laughs> because, that, you know, uh, we extrapolate at the extremes in sentiment. You know, in 2009, markets were only going down and today they're only going up. So so we we naturally you know, position ourselves for the continuation of the trend. And the, at the point of, you know, maximum or, you know, the greatest overconfidence, it's the most, you know, the greatest number of people have embraced that that same viewpoint. Uh, it's become widespread. Uh, so in terms of the risk parity thing, though, I, I think it's interesting to think about uh, a market environment uh, going forward where potentially bonds don't act as a wonderful hedge against falling stock prices or potentially a environment where financial assets generally suffer together um, in a way that they haven't for a long period of time, if ever. You, is that one of the conclusions or theses you're thinking about? Yeah, I worry about the day that the market, the stock market sells off and the bond market sells off with it and bonds don't behave the way people expect them to, you know, it's the, it, you know, we buy bonds for a specific behavior. They are to be less volatile. They're to be income producing, um, you know, they're to be predictable. And if the bond market, if bonds fail to, to satisfy our expectations in terms of behaviors, then there is no place for them. And and here I'm reminded, uh, Jesse, of of how I felt at the peak in in GLD uh, back in I think 2011, when you know you had record holding in this ETF, record physical holding in in gold that I think at that point was either the third or fourth largest physical holder of the commodity and. And the question in my mind was, what do you do with all of that when nobody wants to own it? 
And I, I see ourselves now, we're in an environment with record emerging markets debt, record corporate debt, record sovereign debt outstanding. And, you know, that, that question of, well, what happens when people conclude that bonds aren't going to behave the way they used to behave in a downturn? Who's, who's the buyer? I mean, yeah, it's it's a great question. And in fact, you know, it makes me think about I've spoken with, uh, you know, Bill Fleckenstein on, on this podcast, and I've spoken with William White, the former, you know, chief economist at the BIS, and they both have kind of mentioned that scenario as, you know, kind of being the end game for this for this central bank uh, experiment that we've been witnessing for the better part of the last decade is the is the point in time where in to use Bill's words, um, Fleckenstein's words, uh, where the the bond market takes the printing presses away, <laughs> where the, you know it doesn't act the way it normally would, and interest rates start rising, and you know you ask the question, who's the buyer? Um, and so there's there could be some some point in time where y- yes, investors do lose faith in bonds to be that kind of uh, anchor of their portfolio, and that could have repercussions, you know, for all types of asset classes. So it's, it's really interesting to, to, to hear you say kind of, uh, you know, the similar um, thoughts. I want to come back to, you mentioned the FANG stocks um, and they have, you know, if there was a, a segment of the market uh, that, uh, you know, demonstrates what overconfidence looks like in the market, it's, it's those. Howard Marks called them that, you know, in every bull market cycle, you have the super stocks, which become priced for perfection. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts about the fangs now and where we are in that confidence cycle? So the fact that we can use the term fang just by itself speaks to extreme confidence. You know, acronyms evolve to the point and use to the point where you know, it, it becomes shorthand. And when you can use market shorthand like that, you're already in the in the eighth inning. I think FANGs peaked earlier this year, uh, sometime in the summer, in terms of sentiment. Um, and what's so remarkable to me, and you, you see it this weekend in the New York Times, is how quickly they've gone as companies from do no wrong to do no right. And I think that speaks to the extreme overconfidence that existed earlier this year and the the fragility that goes along with that, that, you know, uh, moments of overconfidence don't end gracefully. We don't gently move back to being confident. Uh, overconfidence bursts. It's a it collapses. You know, you, you realize that you are, you know, way out over your skis and shouldn't be. And that's what I'm afraid we're beginning to see with the, the FANG stocks. And and here the implications go way beyond just, um, you know, the, the, the four horsemen of, of FANG. Uh, it has serious implications for big tech. And if you think about big tech in an era of me here now nationalism, uh, these are companies that are going to be caught in the crosshairs of mounting nationalism. And and you know, is Facebook 
an American technology company or is it a global technology company? Um, I think American citizens, American voters are going to, you know, want to make sure that Facebook, Google and the like uh, put American interests first. Yeah. And for me, I, I think about what is one of those drivers of underconfidence at a social level and the the chart that I just see the chart in my head and it's the labor share of corporate profits, uh, you know, chart that's just been going down for the last several decades to, you know, record lows now. And who are the, and it's created record high profit margins. You know, who are the poster children of record high profit margins at the expense of labor? And it's, it's these companies, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, shareholders look at it like, uh, oh, well, this is the new winner take all economy. And these companies are the, the benefits of that new economy. Um, but it, it seems to me that there, yes, we are seeing, uh, we're starting to see a backlash against, um, you know, profits at the expense of your employees and customers, et cetera. Yeah, and you're really seeing that right now with uh, Equifax, where the the lack of um, of rigor around data control and cybersecurity, uh, you know, customers, shareholders, you know, the, the government, because there are certainly a number of government contracts with Equifax, um, people are are seriously questioning: Did maximizing shareholder interest? go too far in Equifax. And we're, you know, I, I think that's a question that probably we're going to hear a lot more of just, you know, looking at this cycle, um, you know, what's driven stock prices higher for the most part. I mean, the greatest source of demand for stock prices for the last you know, for stocks over the last seven, eight years has been stock buybacks. And, you know, and that's just pure financial engineering to benefit shareholders at the exp- I mean Ralph Nader wrote uh, I don't know if you saw the article recently where he called it um, you know, corporate suicide <laughs> right uh, and uh, so we are seeing a, a backlash to this um, and I think you even you had a great line in your in your recent um, uh, report over the weekend I think you said uh, overconfident shareholders will be met by underconfident employees and customers um, talk about that a little bit. What, what are you? How do you mean? I mean, are we are we starting to see this uh, dichotomy between um, you know financial assets and confidence there, and the social underconfidence? Are we starting to see that kind of clash? Yeah, and I think you know certainly the a number of the Fang stocks. You know, is is Google invasive to its customers? Um, you know, do do these companies know too much about us? And and you know, what really are their their privacy motives? You know, have we somehow been lured in and given them too much information about us that is going to, in some way, be used against us? And so, I think you're seeing the same kind of social backlash begin to appear for big tech that in many ways mirrors the same social backlash we've seen uh, around the establishment Democratic and Republican parties, um, where they got too big, too powerful, 
They were not focused on their client base, their voter base in the case of the political parties, and people wanting to take control back from them. Very, very almost you know, identical behaviors. And so, so your your um, your thinking is that this kind of uh, backlash that we're seeing, you know, politically and against some companies, is going to to spread to corporations in general. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I would label them, you know, less corporations and and more broadly as the powerful. You know, those who may have abused their power. I, I think, you know, Harvey Weinstein is, is a human example of this. The same week we're talking about, you know, overpowerful tech companies. Yeah, that's interesting because there was a, you know, and I, I think of, okay, corporate bully. Who is the biggest corporate bully right now? It's Amazon, right? Everybody, yeah. you know, is Amazon can literally just hint they're going to get into a new industry or sector and it just crushes all the stocks in that sector. And there was a, a recent, um, you know, paper written. It was an academic paper about antitrust and Amazon, and it went viral. I mean, how often do uh-huh. you know, academic papers go viral? So people, it's resonating with people that you know maybe Amazon is the big bully on the on the block, and they deserve to be uh, knocked down a peg or two. Well, and there again, bullies only exist in an environment of overconfidence where people perceive the bully to be omnipotent. A a kind of powerful bully is a very short-lived bully. Bullies tend to go from tyrant to impotent. There's there's very little in between. It's it's sort of the, the prison warden runs a calm, quiet prison until there's Attica. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's, it's a complete upheaval. So what are the, uh, what are the implications for these companies, for these, for these stocks? I mean, um, you can talk, we can talk about them individually. We can talk about the broad market. Um, you have used the term, you know, backlash era. Welcome to the backlash era. If you think this, you know, the, the experience with, um, you know, Wells Fargo and, uh, you know, these companies and Harvey Weinstein is going to expand to more and more companies. Um, you know, how, how do, what are the, well, I guess, what are the investment implications of all this? Well, I think it, the investment implication is that prices are extremely fragile because if you think about today's prices as reflecting not confidence but overconfidence, then we have the potential for major air pockets in price as you know, companies go from omnipotent to impotent. And, and there, I think that investors really need to consider the, the power dynamic of companies, you know, who's out there that are perceived to be way too powerful in their space. And the, the challenge today, Jesse, is that as you go industry to industry, we live in an environment of oligopolies. You know, we have three major auto companies. We have, you know, four major oil companies. We've got a very few number of enormous companies dominating sector after sector. 
in hotels, in, you know, choose, choose the industry. So those companies in an environment of backlash become natural targets because they are almost instantaneously viewed as too powerful. And there, I think it's interesting to see, too, that they're not just I think we're seeing a backlash on the part of customers when people are starting to think about how social media and smartphones are stressing them out or at least contributing to their to their stress. But we're also seeing it on the political front, too, where there is more talk of, you know, Facebook and Google and the Russian interference in, in the elections and, uh, you know, how they need to be regulated as media companies. So it's it's almost a like a dual backlash between customers and potentially regulators. Well, and, and don't just think of it as regulators here in the U.S. Um, you know, think of it as backlash globally and I think it's, you know, we, we have these very powerful global corporations. And the question for an Apple, for an Amazon, for a, for a Google, for, you know, British Petroleum slash BP is what passport do you carry? Are you with us or are you against us? And, and as nationalism takes hold more and more around the globe. You know, take take a company like, you know, like Fiat. You know, is Fiat Italian? Is Fiat American because of its ownership stake in Chrysler? Um, how we identify these global behemoths by nationality is going to matter. I, I, I think of Kaspersky as, as an early victim of this. You know, it can't help but be Russian. And, you know, that is that association, which has been ignored up until now, is going to just devastate the company. Global corporations need to recognize that they are all equally vulnerable to that kind of backlash as national identity takes greater and greater importance. That's that's a terrific point. I, I think of, you know, uh, Facebook and if, you know, it's not if the, the Russians did manipulate voters um, and it became a an incredibly effective tool of propaganda. How many countries are going to say we don't want this propaganda tool in our country? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's a massive risk to Facebook. Yeah. And I, I I've suggested that, you know, we, we think of low confidence resulting in limitations on the mobility of labor goods, services, and capital. I think that there's going to be a, a fifth element to it in this cycle, which is data. And so, you know, in the same way countries are going to control capital flows, there's no question that they will control data flows as well. Interesting. Well, because it's, you know, data can be you know, that much more powerful than than capital. Well, in, yeah. in, in the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, data is capital. Right. <laughs> Good point. Right. Um, how, what, 
What would your advice be to uh, investors who are totally kind of unaware of you know socionomics? How how can the average investor um, start to understand socionomics and put it put it to use in their own investment process? Uh, I think first of all to recognize that investing runs counter to every human instinct we have because you you should be buying stocks when you know the building is on fire and there's nothing good about the potential investment that you're you are actually lighting money on fire and and i think that recognizing that your greatest opportunity as an investor is when confidence is at its lowest point. Um, I, I think is the most important and, and most basic tenet to socionomics and, and its application to, to financial decision making. Um, and there, I would say the world around you gives you wonderful objective data points if you're willing to use them. So, for example, in the end of 2015, early 2016, you had collapsing prices in the metals complex. And I got really excited about Brazil as an opportunity because you also had political turmoil. You had people rioting in the streets. You had nothing but this overwhelming mosaic expressing all of these various economic, social, political, financial reasons not to get into that market. And so I think for investors, being able to to look at the world around them and go, wow, all of this looks bad. I need to get in there is a is exactly the, the, the value to socionomics. And conversely, when everything looks wonderful, to say, you know what? As great as it feels, it's time to leave the party. Am I going to leave money on the table? Absolutely. But as a general matter, there's you know, there's a hundred yards between the end zones. So there's there's plenty of room um along the way to, to, to make money. Um, and, and I think that market timing has received such a bad rap that I actually, I actually see a major return to that because the, the potential here is that the entire squad of lemmings goes off the cliff together. Yeah. Well, my friend uh, John Hussman will love to hear that. He's one of the few mutual fund managers out there still trying to manage risk, and he's taken a hell of a lot of criticism for it. But I, I think, you know, for, from an underconfidence standpoint, I can't think of a strategy that has greater under, underconfidence in it. You know, with what you mentioned also about how investors can use this, I think about Howard Marks, you know, says the key to su- successful investing is you have to have a non-consensus view and you have to, about value and you have to be right. I think 
you know, another way to, to think about that is, is a way I've heard you put it, which is, um, you know, overconfidence is an over, um, or an underestimating of risk and underconfidence is an overestimating of risk. And so having understanding what that consensus is towards risk, when people don't have enough appreciation for risk, um, you can have that non-consensus view of, you know, there is, there is more risk than the market or, or than, then uh, this security is pricing in. And conversely, um, you know, when, when investors are overestimating risk, that's a good sign of underconfidence and good opportunity. Is that is a fair way to think about it? Absolutely. And to remember that, you know, you don't set the price. The, the crowd sets the price. So understand the confidence level of the crowd. And, and crowds will tell you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty obvious. And you look at uh not just, you know, valuations, but you look at how people are talking about it, media's writing about it. You you say all the time media reflects mood. It's not too hard to to find out a lot of this stuff. Um for people who are interested in keeping up with your ideas, your writing, uh Peter, where can people find you? So, I have a commentary that I send out to clients every week. Um I also and fairly active on Twitter, and uh, will post things uh, for public view uh, on LinkedIn. And generally, I, I write something once a week for uh, folks on on LinkedIn. Um, those those are the three major ways to see me. And and you know, as, as you identified, there are a couple of talks, uh, principle. What I would think of as principles uh, discussions that I did uh, through the the TED series. Okay, so the yeah, the, I'll have links to those those videos um, on on the site. Um, but uh, your website is financialinsights.com with spelled insight with a Y. Yes, yeah, right? so I N S Y G H T S. Okay, and at, it's just at Peter Atwater for Twitter. Yes, uh, Peter okay. underscore Atwater. Perfect. And you know, you're an absolute must follow. I, I read every tweet that you send just so I want to keep up with you know, with your thoughts about all these different dynamics. So Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity, Jesse. Thanks so much. that does it for another episode of Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Uh, for notes and links related to today's episode, visit thefelderreport.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.